we will stand on every promise of his word. Let's turn in our Bibles this evening to the book of Jude. Let's turn together to the book of Jude this evening as we continue our study through this epistle, this meaty epistle. I think if you're like me and we're finding there's a lot more to the book of Jude than maybe uh, that first appears. And uh, even when I was preparing to, to study uh, this passage, this book, and just seeking the face of the Lord, as I've gotten into it, my goodness, uh, there is so much truth here, so much help and uh, grace here for us as the church to be able to understand a sign of the times. And to that we say thank you to the Lord. So turning in our Bibles to the book of Jude, we're looking now, beginning, picking up in verses 12 and 13. And this is an unusual text. It will ring unusual uh, to the ears as we hear it right off the surface level. But Jude is continuing to give us these characteristics of apostates. That's the title of the sermon this evening, Characteristics of Apostates. He's been giving us this multifaceted um, angles, different uh, ways, perspectives to look at these apostates. In fact, it hit me this week, you know, it's interesting, John chooses to give names. At times in the Bible, the, the writers choose to give a name. Uh, for example, uh, John gives us in his epistle, beware of diatrophies, right? That's a name of an elder in the church, the pastor of a local church, who loves to have the preeminence. And diatrophies was preventing, uh, if you will, John from having warmth of fellowship, accessibility uh, to the church. But in this passage... Jude does not give names. He doesn't seem evidently as if it's particularly helpful. If he said it's Bill or Sally or whatever, that honestly really doesn't pertain to us. But what he is giving us is how we can know who these individuals are throughout church history and in the life of the church. So picking up in verse 12, he says, These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are Clouds without water, carried about by winds or by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, verse 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever and ever. Well, the grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. So as we look into this passage, what we find is what the theme that we've been looking at the last number of weeks is that false teachers or apostate teachers are a danger to the church. They affect the church through, last time together we saw beginning in verse 8, unholy boldness, unholy ignorance, and unholy ambition. Jude gives us within the example of Scripture they are unholy. Boldness is exemplified in immorality that is excused. In verse 10, unholy ignorance in that they do not understand what they're doing. If they did, they would not do it. If they truly understood the eternal gravitas of their twisting of Scripture and dealing with spirit beings and Satan, so to speak, they would not be so bold as announcing their power over him or them, if you will. Verse 11, we saw the unholy ambition of Korah, who brought about division, dissension, rebellion among the children of Israel. And so we see that these are characteristics of whoever these apostates are. This is their method of operating. And so there's a principle in the scripture that says this, we can just deduct this, that God opposes those who oppose his authority. 
Another way of saying it is that God's path of blessing for me and for you is always through his ordained authority or delegated authority that he has placed to us or for us. In fact, one sense, one author said it like this, all apostasy is really a rebellion against the sovereignty of God. It's a rebellion not only against God himself, but it's a deep-seated rebellion against, you could say it like this, his administration. God administers things the way they are. He makes us the way we are as men and women in the callings and vocations. And yet an apostate rebels against all of God's pattern and plan. An apostate says, no, we're going to do things like this, and we're going to use this for our gain, for our glory, not for the glory of God. Our theme tonight as we look at verses 12 through 13 is unholy presence. They are an unholy presence in the church. They are among the church. They are present in the church. But the theme of verses 12 and 13 is like they are there. They are present, and yet you may not know who they are, unless you think that that's my perspective. Again, look back into the text. We see in verse 12, our outline tonight will be framed around a couple of uh, Fs. They are fearless, verse 12. They are fruitless, verse 12. They are filthy, verse 13. And they are fallen. In verse 13. So verse 12 and 13 will just limit our perspective to tonight. But first of all, I want you to notice that they are fearless. Again, this boldness, as we saw last time, is connected and continued into verse 12. Well, what way are they fearless? Well, notice what Jude says. He says, These are spots in your love feast while they feast with you, but yet without fear. Notice here, serving only themselves. Here we see a driving motivation to what is, this is a a fleshly rendering, if you will. This is self-gain, self-appeasement. This is not a love for the body of Christ, whether individuals in the pew for the body of Christ or leaders within the church for the body of Christ. These are those who are in it for one thing and one thing only, and that is themselves. This word spots in verse 12 could be rendered differently. The LSB renders it hidden reefs, the New American Standard as well. Others give more varied language there. But the idea is a hidden reef is a ledge of rock below the surface, a reef in the ocean. And so the word picture is one of a, a ship sailing towards the shore. Everything looks fine. Everything seems fine. The captain on the ship thinks that everything is good. He's waiting for the right tide to come in so that he can come into the point of safety. And just as that moment begins to happen, the ship crashes into a hidden rock formation just under the surface of the water. The whole of the ship splits open and water begins to come on board and the ship sinks. So it's in that way these apostates are like that. They're hidden under the, under the surface of the life of the church. They are under the water. They are unseen. You, you don't see it initially. But here's the devastating reality, is that people's lives are ruined because of contact with them. People's understanding of, you could flesh it out even more, and I'll try to do that at the end of this point, just by way of application, but people's perspective of God is ruined or affected, you could say, or people are disillusioned is a word we often hear today, disillusionment with the way they thought things were. But because of these individuals, their reality is skewed. 
And so thank, aren't you thankful, as maybe some of you, I see some of you nodding your head, you may know by experience or you may know by uh, others or whatever, but aren't you thankful for the sovereign grace of God? And what I mean by that is that he preserves his people. The reality, there is a reality within the life of the church that there is cause and effect and there's very real pain and distress. And so lest we get alarmed and say, oh, Lord, you know, help. <laughs> and we certainly say that. He does. And he certainly will see us through all the way all the way home. So the application for us within the life of the church is, again, as Jude says, these are spots or hidden rocks underneath the surface of the water in your love feast. The love feast was a practice of the early church, very similar to the Lord's table, but one where they would come together and celebrate their commonality in Christ and just known as the love feast that the church would observe. In one sense, our love feast is not the same, but we'll be doing that next Sunday night, right? We'll be gathering together Common, celebrating all that we have in Christ and what God is doing individually in us and what he's doing in the life of the church and that type of thing. But this is what Jude says. He says, these are present at your love feasts, and yet they are a selfish presence. People will come into contact with them and they will run aground. Uh, people will come into the life of the church where they think they're safe. They're thinking, here we are coming to worship God with his people, but there is a false teacher in the pulpit. Or there's a false teacher in the Sunday school class. Or there is a false person in the pew. And so contact with these individuals. They believe they're being guided into safe harbor. But in reality, they're about to hit a crash landing with these reefs. You know, a note I have here just by way of application is the power, that really the power of influence. Friends, we need to choose our churches carefully, but we need to choose our friends carefully too, don't we? Oftentimes, we are very influenced by those that we surround ourselves with the most, and we are foolish if we think <laughs> that that will not have an effect upon us. Yes, there is a divine tension of gospel labor and gospel effort and gospel work. We're not talking about you don't have contact with sinners and that type of thing. I'm not talking about that. We're not talking about evangelism. We're, not, we're just talking about in the, but who you join yourselves to intimately. Choose those individuals Carefully, in the same way, we have a verse we quote often, as iron sharpens iron, so does a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. That can go both positively and negatively. So be assured in the gospel, be assured in the life of Christ. But these individuals, instead of sharpening one another, or a pastor preaching is the theme of, his, of the, the sufficient word of God, assuring a congregation in the gospel, spurring people to grow in holiness and faith and growing strong in the faith, there is a little bit more of a man-centered approach, and you begin to hear it out. You begin to see it in the life of teaching and preaching or counsel that is given. You'd be amazed at the bad counsel people give regularly, aphorisms and cultural colloquialisms that we heard from mama and we heard from daddy and we hear all the time and we go into Hobby Lobby and we see it on the wall. We see it in a picture frame on the wall. We say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just, just by way of faith, food, and fun, or something like that. And just little things that may be true, they may not be, but whatever. But we just wind up saying them over and over again, and we repeat them to others. Well, remember, ain't nobody happy if mama ain't happy, or just some, some aphorism like that. And next thing you know, you're, you're more guided in hearing counsel by just colloquialisms in Southern culture than you are by the sufficient, powerful, authoritative word of God. And so I'm just trying to give you some practical takeaways on that. Ultimately, people's lives are destroyed where you find community and people who are not shepherding your heart towards the Lord, but away from the Lord. These are spots in your love feasts 
while they feast with you, notice verse 12, they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. This is just kind of an interesting uh, a take. So in the metaphor that Jude gives here in verse 12, you imagine this love feast, I don't think he has in mind here that they're the person that goes first in the line, right? But it could be that. In the metaphor, that's what he's describing. But the idea is, is these are those who use the things of God for gain. They use these things for themselves. The ultimate reason why they're doing what they're doing is it's a deceptive presence. It's for themselves. Their self-aggrandizement. They pretend to love the body of Christ, or they pretend to love the things of Christ, but in reality, they are selfish shepherds. That, that is an anomaly, isn't it? So we think about the calling of true Christians, the calling of all of us in one sense, as we think about discipleship and the evangelism and the ministry opportunities that God gives us, is to feed the sheep. John 21, 15, Jesus said to Peter, If you love me, Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So these are shepherds, though, who do not feed the sheep. They feed themselves. And they do it in manipulative ways. They are, they are hirelings. They treat the ministry, if you will, like a job, or they treat service for the Lord like a job. And on and on we could go. They're motivated not for the glory of God, but, but for gain. And so we see this, point number one, they are fearless again. Not only are they fearless, but secondly, I want you to note, they are, they are fruitless according to Jude's perspective and Jude's teaching. Notice verse 12, they are clouds without water. They are carried about by the winds. There's no substance there. There's an appearance of it, but there's nothing actually there. They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I believe right here in verse 12, we see the heart of what Jude is getting at in all of his summary of apostates. Clouds without water, trees without fruit. These are things that when you see a cloud, a cloud that is pregnant, a cloud that is on the horizon and the, the ground is parched, as we'll see in just a moment, the perspective of the metaphor, but these are clouds that come and go and yet no water is given to satiate the desire or the need, that the spiritual needs of the people. They are also trees that do not bear fruit. So let's begin with clouds without water. The result is they are carried about by the winds. There's a, there's a, there's a metaphor that is here that Jude continues, and it's that they are unstable. Clouds without water, fruit without trees. They have no roots, solid ground. These are, there's an appearance of substance, but there is no substance. Again, he says twice dead, pulled up by the roots. In fact, if you remember Jesus' famous teaching on this, Matthew 7, 15, he, in a parallel passage, he says, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. In that, in this context, Jude's context, they don't bear any, right? So you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every, notice here, every good tree bears forth good fruit. Every bad tree bears forth bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So then every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Again, a parallel passage, if you're taking notes, is John 15, that purging, winnowing work that Jesus does uh, to those who are not only his, but also to those who are not his own. Well, Jude picks up on that. He says, these are trees that don't bear fruit, and they have no roots in the soil that brings forth life. 
So as we go back to the waterless clouds metaphor that Jude gives here, Israel, of course, if you think about the Middle East, was a dry climate. It was an agrarian culture. Abundant rain is necessary, of course, for crops to grow. We can understand that being in a, an agrarian culture here in East Tennessee. Like clouds that appear upon the horizon and the hopes of the farmers look and see and they're anticipating, been praying for satiating rain. These clouds come and yet they deceive. There's an appearance of substance and there's a dwelling of substance. There's a looking and a longing and a continuing. But yet these clouds just, they move on right along and the people are left to starve or to die of thirst. They promise, but they do not deliver. In fact, Jude seems to have Proverbs 25, 14 in mind here. Proverbs 25, 14, where the book of Proverbs says this, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Here in Jude's example, they don't give the gift because they don't actually possess it. So there's a promise, but there's no deliverance. They promise something that they cannot give, like clouds without rain or wind without rain. Matthew 12, 43 is another example of a cross-reference that helps shed light onto this, this passage. So they are fruitless. They are fruitless. So not only clouds without water, but the second metaphor he gives there is they are like late autumn trees without fruit. Uh, when we first moved here a couple years ago, um, Lewis Portwood, at Lewis Portwood's recommendation, he told us where to go find the best apples in the region. And uh, we went down to, I can't remember where it is, but heading down towards Dayton, went up on the mountain up there. And we were able to go visit the apple orchards, but in late autumn, the best harvest of the season. And we're able to enjoy, just spend a day of having a picnic lunch and just enjoying the farm and, and walking around. Autumn is when the farmers and the gardeners expect a harvest, the final harvest for the year's final crops. But yet these are like late autumn trees, but there's no harvest that comes. You're hoping for life-giving fruit or vegetables that will sustain you through the winter, but there's nothing. There will be hardship. You know a certain life is hard. Circumstances are hard. You need the satiating teaching, clear teaching of the Word of God, our hope planted and rested in the, the gospel of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And yet these Christians, professing Christians, these apostates, these teachers do not offer that hope. They do not feed the sheep. So there's no fruit. In fact, everything they touch dies. In fact, one of the signs of an apostate is, is what they have, it, it, they destroy. If you, if you look at their pattern or if you look at their history, if, if you look at their ministry or, or whatever, oftentimes there is nothing but destruction or devastation in their past. Not always, but oftentimes that's a common thread. So as we think about how this works itself out in the life of the church, it appeals to the flesh. And I want you to turn with me briefly to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Now I want to remind ourselves as we think about these apostates, Jude says they're like this. Well, let's compare and contrast the calling of the New Testament elder pastor who, what, what Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, this is what your calling is. And so as we look at the positive example, we're going to remind ourselves that this is what it is, and this is that they are not that. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, or excuse me, I, I wrote it down, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Verses 1 through 4, we are very familiar with. 
It's the wonderful passage that reminds us this is why we do what we do. Paul says, I charge you, therefore, before the presence of God and Lord Jesus Christ to preach the word, verse 2. But jumping down uh, to verse 3, he says this. He says, for the time will come, Timothy, when in the life of the church they will not endure, notice here, sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So here we have that calling that is responsible for us as Christians. God places a calling upon our life that we're to fulfill what God has led us to do. But these do not fulfill. There's no driving ambition reminding themselves, verse 1, that they will, they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day as their, their righteous judge. They don't take any of that into account. They come in as actors, they come in as wolves, and yet they cannot say they have no desire to be watchful in all things. They have no desire to endure afflictions. As a matter of fact, the key of an apostate is when things start getting hard, they're gone. They're a hireling, remember. It's about their comfort. It's about their ease. It's about their own whatever, you know. But yet the calling is to be watchful in all things and endure afflictions. Notice what Paul says he's preparing for his his, his death, and he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, now notice here, the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. These individuals in the life of the church have no such awareness they, they don't understand that this is a calling, or as Christians, as you break it down within the life of the church, just the calling of holiness, the calling to serve Christ, or the calling to live for Him. They're not aware of this. They're not living for this. They begin to camp down in false teaching that can manifest itself in the form of legalism. It can be some type of codified religion that's easy to be busy. Legalism, one of the side effects of legalism is that there's a lot of activity. In fact, if you're working your way to heaven, it works well towards that end. Um, there's a you know three to thrive. If, if you know it's it's if you're not soul winning three four times a week, if you're not just booking it, serving, working for Jesus, and there's good things about that. Don't get me wrong, but the motivation's all wrong. Legalism has a lot of activity. Lots of uh, things are taking place. It's codified. You look a certain way, you do things a certain way, and you go a certain way, and yet you can completely shield and hide the life of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit that is completely absent. In fact, in legalism, if as long as you're just doing the right things, you get a pass. No one cares about the character. No one cares about the heart or the fruit. You know, I'm concerned about so-and-so. I, I, he's, he's abandoned his family. You know what? But he's a good soul winner. It is blindness. It's, 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 the, the response is pointing to what they do for God. You want to say, whoa, wait a second. There's a higher calling. There is a, you know, we're blind. We're missing the forest for the trees. But in the same way, it can manifest itself within legalism, but it, it can also manifest itself in licentiousness. And I think licentiousness is the main theme of apostasy that Jude is confronting here within the whole theme of the book. Licentious teachers are highly emotional teachers, excitable teachers. They come in and, and fool the people of God. They play on people's emotions. They appeal to the flesh. They're slick. They're sharp. 
They're relevant. They're fun. They're seeking the approval of man, but yet it's all entertainment and no satisfying substance. It does not feed the soul. It's an event, you could say. Many, many churches are just an event. You just show up and you're entertained and, and you leave like you're going to a movie or something like that. On and on, we could give these characteristics. But one of the key signs of licentiousness is that there's never a growth into maturity. There's instability. Sheep are not matured in the faith. They are unstable. But it can manifest itself. This fruitlessness can appear one way in legalism or licentiousness, but it also can manifest itself in health and wealth teaching. A promise of healing. If you just have enough faith and you come to God. So the activity is the apostate teacher of one constantly putting an emphasis on what God can do. If you just do your part in the sense of, though, you've got to have enough faith. So sow your seed to me in my pocketbook and it will happen even quicker. There's no feeding of the sheep. There's no love for the saints. There's no protecting the bride of Christ. There's no laying down their lives. These slick guys that you see and read and see in the bestseller list, there's, there's no love, if you will, of the local church, the blood-bought bride of Christ. On and on we could go healing. Those who have an overemphasis on healing. I think of the testimony of Justin Peters who's in his wheelchair and why his ministry particularly has its name. As, his main talk is clouds without water because he was one of those who went to be healed and they ignored him. They sent men to keep him from coming to the front. And he, he sincerely desired to be healed and had the faith, as much faith as he could muster. And friends, when you just meditate on that a while, that'll make you ma- you're, you're angry. That'll stir you up when you begin to realize the devastation that these individuals do to sincere saints, sincere Christians, those who are led astray. Now, it manifests its it manifests this, this fruitlessness manifests itself in a number of ways. I'll just try to give you some examples so that uh, you can maybe understand it. But there's a theme, and this theme is fruitlessness. In fact, I want you to turn to Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22, because friends, without, I just want to nail this home. Regardless of your background or uh, whatever, we're, we're concerned about Grace Church. We want to study the Word of God and apply it here. And so this is what we all want to be seeing in our lives as we examine ourselves and see whether we be in the faith. The lives of every member of Grace Church is growing in the life of the Spirit, which is what? The fruit of the Spirit being worked out in all of us. God's sovereign work of sanctifying us into the image of His Son. And friends, it doesn't matter what we do for Christ. It doesn't matter how we go about uh, whatever. If the fruit of the Spirit is not being manifested in our life, then we need to be concerned. We need to love one another enough when we say, how are you doing? Or having fellowship or praying for one another. Listen, if these things aren't present, let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's sharpen one another and strengthen and encourage one another. And the reason I'm turning to Galatians 5.22, because in legalism, there's no concern about the fruit of the Spirit. It's activity-oriented. Busyness equates spirituality. Or busyness equates holiness, you could say. In each one of these, we can make the application. There's no concern about the character or the fruit of the Spirit and what the work is being done by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Verse 24, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Romans 8 gives that parallel that shows us the works of the flesh profit nothing, but the life of the Spirit is that which remains. Those who walk in the Spirit will have no condemnation. In fact, just turn there briefly, Romans 8, if you don't mind. Just, just turn there quickly because I think it will help nail this point home. Romans 8, 1, Paul says, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, here's what you got to understand. In an apostate's teaching, or Christians who are self-deceived, there is no emphasis on the life of the Spirit as is biblical. There is a distortion of the Spirit. Holy Spirit come down in this place, and laughing revivals, and there's, uh, there's, there is distortions of what they say is the work of the Spirit, but it's not consistent with what God's Word says. Do you understand what I mean by that? I don't want to waste our time, I just you know, going on and on, but there's all types of things attributed to the Spirit of God. That is not the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's demonic. But here we see, here we see the life of the Spirit is that which is truly spiritual or fleshly. So there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. When Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, this is what he's talking about. He goes on to say there, he says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Drop down to verse 6. He says, to be carnally, fleshly minded is death. Well, wait a second. That's the only gear they operate in. Is that which appeals to the flesh, whether legalism, licentiousness, health and wealth, all of that which tickles the ears and appeals to the fleshly nature of man. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, in conclusion, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if you are in the flesh, he's, excuse me, he says you, speaking to the, the audience there here of Romans, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Just before we leave this passage, verse 8. So then, those who are in the flesh, notice here, cannot please God. Well, we've just summarized the main flows of how this is manifested in the life of the American church today is legalism, licentiousness, prosperity, gospelism. All of that is fleshly teaching. All of that gives us a sense of pride and hope of our performance, kind of like what we saw this morning. It causes us to begin to, be, to judge other people by how they perform with our performance. Well, we all just need to be looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our, of our faith. So these are the, these are the fruits. They, they are fruitless in their lives, in their ministries. There's a fruitless presence that they have within the life of the church. So sometimes you can determine what it is by what they say or what they teach, but also by what they don't. It goes both ways in dividing this, the truth, the single-edged razor of God's, God's Word. I also want to make clear, as you think about fruitfulness and fruitlessness, I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Many are God's servants who are holy, spirit-filled, used of the Lord, that don't see fruit for years. I, I'm not saying, when I say fruit, I'm not talking in the sense of numbers. It could include numbers, but it is not equated to numbers. You think of examples in church history like William Carey, who served the Lord in uh, Burma and then um, Myanmar, and for, was there for seven years. And in that journey from leaving America, by the way, his biography is in our library. I would exhort you to read it. It's called To the Golden Shore. Amazing book. 
in his journey from, I believe, uh, to, from going to the mission field, he was a congregationalist, and he changed his belief in, in what is biblical baptism. He became a Baptist in his theology. He began to study the Scripture all that time on the boat. He just read uh, the Bible, read the Bible. The Holy Spirit showed him that some areas of his theology were, were wrong, and he changed that. And when he changed that, he lost his support from, from those who supported him when he left to go to the mission field. He's completely abandoned in a sense. He loses his wife, Anne, in no time at all. You just want to experience hardship. You want to imagine hardship and tragedy. This guy goes through it, doesn't see one convert for seven years. For seven years. But you fast forward. By the way, God would bless his ministry. And I'm sorry, I'm getting two things mixed up. William Carey, I'm also talking about Adoniram Judson at the same time. Now, interestingly enough, even though I am slightly confused, William Carey, I believe it was six years before, before he saw his first convert, Adoniram Judson was seven years, so I'm not that far off, okay? Uh, William Carey went to India. Adoniram Judson went to Burma. Yeah, so both are very similar. In fact, they were contemporaries, and it's easy to get them confused. But either way, for both of them, right, God used them, worked in them, but it took years for them to see fruit. In fact, William Carey, going, going to William Carey, the main translation that is used in that whole part of the world, particularly in the nation of India, which is fast becoming, about to become the largest nation in the world, with I don't know how many billion people. It's about to leapfrog China. You know, we think about China leading the way in, far as in that largest number category. India is about to you know, leapfrog them because of China's one-child uh, one policy within their nation for many years. It's bringing about the fruit of a declining population. So all that being said, the Bible, if you go look at where God is doing a gospel work there in India, what you find is, as William Carey's translation, is at the root of all of it. So the, the judgment seat of Christ will fully reveal uh, all that we've done for him. So when we talk about fruit, I want to make sure some of you may be thinking of uh, relatives or friends or whatever, and they're struggling in the ministry. That happens for sure. But the fruit we're talking about is internal, spiritual fruit, God's comfort, his blessing, his peace, as he sanctifies us through the gospel for his glory. Well, number one, they are fearless. Number two, they are fruitless. Then number three, we find in verse 13, this illustration, this metaphor that, that Jude gives, they are filthy. They are filthy. They are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. You can imagine in your mind's eye, maybe you've gone on a boardwalk in New Jersey or upon the Atlantic coast or the Pacific coast, and you can see some rocks. The, the metaphor here in my mind is not going to the Gulf Coast of the promised land of Alabama. Not, we're not talking about that, the soft white, uh, you know, the, the uh, sugar sand, all that. Um, I'm just being, okay, whatever. Um, you're, you're thinking of like the Pacific coast and the Atlantic coast where uh, there is not a beach, but there is, there is rocks and the ocean is, is putting out its, its trash, that which has been thrown into it. In the same way that the sea kicks up its trash upon the shore and ultimately all who pass along that way can see it, these are like that. They are filthy. They are raging waves of the sea, foaming up. Now notice here, unless you think filthy is too strong of a word, he says foaming up their own shame. Foaming up their own shame. Isaiah 57, 20 says this. Isaiah says that the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet and its waters Toss up refuse and mud. Verse 21, there is no peace, says God, for the wicked. So Jude has already instructed us in multiple, we've looked at it, that these individuals turn the grace of God into an excuse for immorality or reveling in things that they should be ashamed of. They are unashamed regarding that. 
So what they should be ashamed of, it's there for all people to see, will come out. It's, it's as if their life is, is that trash, the, the hidden man of the heart, if you will, is kicking up the, on the shoreline restlessness or behavior, the fruit of no peace. There is no sense of stability. There is no sense of deep-rooted satisfaction. In fact, you could say their, their satisfaction and identity is not found in the finished work of Christ, and that is what leads to all of these manifestations of however they, they do that. So they are, they are filthy. And then lastly, as we look at verse 13, they are fallen. Jude gives us this final metaphor for our study this evening. He says, they are wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever and ever. As you think about a wandering star, we would probably call this a meteor, a, a light, a shooting star that, that flashes brightly with the contrast of the dark night sky. A shooting star that flashes brightly upon the scene, and then just as fast as it comes, it's gone. So compare this, as Jude just simply says, they are like, and each one of these metaphors there's word studies within the metaphors. We could, we could go on and on, which we're just we're trying to be disciplined with that tonight. But instead of continuing to go on with what Jude says, I want, to trans, I want us to compare and contrast like we did with the fruit, the fl- works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to turn with me to Colossians 1.23. We're going to look at two verses of Scripture, just as final passages tonight. But compare and contrast what Jude says. These are like meteors flashing through the night sky. Again, there's no stability. There's no rootedness in their professions or their, their act, actions or their lives. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul is in the middle of a Christ-honoring, exalting passage, introducing the epistle to the church at Colossae. But in verse 23, we just see this phrase that stands out. He says, if, he's talking about all that is promised to them in Christ Jesus, but he says, notice he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. In other words, it's not what you say. It's the reality that's borne out, friends, in your life. What is the fruit of your life? He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Notice you're firmly established. Firmly steadfast. Now compare that to what Jude says. These are like meteors flashing quickly in the night sky. Well, the life of the calling that Christ has placed upon us is not a flash-in-the-pan type of profession or sanctification or life, friends. Brothers and sisters, it is a calling to be rooted in Christ, who is the head of the church. In fact, we don't have time to look at the context of Colossians 1. That's why Christ is preeminent above all creation. Christ is preeminent in the church, and Christ is to be preeminent in my life. And in your life, and when Christ is preeminent, we will continue firmly in the faith, established, steadfast. Now notice here, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Friends, this is life in Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the one who keeps us grounded for faith and life in all eternity. One of the passages, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I almost said it like the British say it, 1 Peter 5, 10. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Notice Peter as well 
is shepherding the church. These are, these are true shepherds preparing the church, feeding the church, teaching within the context, chapter 4, verse 4, of the chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, he says, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. But 1 Peter 5, verse 10, Peter is shepherding the heart of the church and saying, don't be a wandering star or a meteor that is flaky. So many people are flaky and they, they disappear. If you're just faithful to one local church congregation, just think about within the life of the church, people will come to Grace Church and they will leave Grace Church. And we're not trying to pass condemnation on all of them, I'm talking about whether visitors or whatever. But hardly anyone, you could just imagine, is committed to anything at all. Right, the life of time span of really of most people, whether it's a job or whatever, it's kind of the, the the state of our times or the age. But people come, people go. But notice Peter is shepherding the heart of the church to stay fixed and knowing that suffering is on the horizon. He says, "After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, what will He do? He Himself will perfect you. He will confirm you." He will strengthen you. He will establish you. Friends, these are those who are bought by the blood of Christ. And the chief sanctifying work of the New Testament believer is not through the pastor alone, or your husband alone, or your wife alone, although everybody has a role, or the body alone, although the body has a role. But friends, take hope in this, that the chief sanctifying work is done by the chief shepherd. And he he will ground you in the eternal glory that is in Christ. He will perfect you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. Now, bringing back to the book of Jude, in conclusion, we see, whereas Jude says, these are not like that. An apostate is one who is the opposite of that. So as we compare and contrast those who are rooted in the gospel find their fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction and hope and glory in the finished work of Christ. Jude says these are not like that. They are not settled in their faith. They are wandering stars, and they will prove to be wandering stars. They will lose their former steadfastness that they once had. Think about how often people move from one trend to another or one opinion to another. He says these will be like that. They will move from one opinion to another. They will move on from Christ. They are like a ship without an anchor. We were saying this morning, but Christ for us is the sure and steady anchor. So we sang this morning, I wrote it in our, my notes. Christ is the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. In the suffering and the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. But these are not like that. They will be removed. They will depart from Christ. James chapter 1, verse 2. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to place the emphasis on this word steadfast. James says, Count it all joy, church, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, and here's the word that can be rendered in the ESV, steadfastness, patience in the New King James, in the New American Standard, I believe. Here in the ESV, steadfastness. Verse 4, And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. A double-minded man, he'll go on to say, verse 8, is unstable in all his ways. 
So how do we do this as we conclude this evening? How do we examine our own hearts? How do we be on guard against those who would manifest the fruit of an apostate? Well, I would just tell you and warn all of us, myself included, instead of having our eyes out here, first and foremost, we need to have our eyes in here preeminently. As D.L. Moody said, I have so much to oversee in the life of my own soul, I have no time to judge anyone else. And we get that. So as we look at this teaching, our, our job is not to be, well, I wonder who might be an apostate here. That, that is not what we're trying to do here tonight. We are simply studying God's word. We know that they are real. But most importantly, we want to be assured in the faith. We want to be strengthened in the faith. We want to search our hearts and say, God, keep me, hold me. Give me the peace that passes all understanding. Would you help me by your spirit to be steadfast? By the way, in that passage just read from James 1, James says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men freely without making fun of you, without abrading you, without correcting you. Simply ask in faith. So church, let's be found doing this, seeking the face of the Lord, saying, God, would you give me wisdom? Give me wisdom for my own sanctification. Give me wisdom for my home. Give me wisdom for my marriage. Give me wisdom for my parenting. Give me wisdom for my church. Give me wisdom for the ministry opportunities that you have given to me. Lord, give me that wisdom. Help me to be fixed and steadfast in spite of all the trials. Remember, an apostate is when the trials come, they're gone. They're not here for that. They were here for self-feeding. <laughs> they they're standing on the, the top of the church. They're, they're standing on the church. Or those who are in the pew simply come to the church for the benefits of the church. But the second any type of commitment is needed or the second any time like something gets hard or difficult, they're gone. They're gone. So that's what we see. As we think about the purpose of how God feeds his people and sanctifies his people, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How do we remain steadfast? How do we not be like these meteors that are flashing through the sky? We are rooted by the hammer of God's word when week after week we are fed the truth of Scripture. When day by day in our own lives we open God's word and are fed and His Spirit strengthens us and establishes us. When all the influences in our life are only accomplishing and working towards that end, we will find ourselves fixed, rooted, and established and looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We will find that God's word counsels us, strengthens us, and establishes us. Well, church, as we think about this teaching, may the Lord help us to guard our hearts personally, to, to stay rooted upon Christ, continue to, in the same way that Job would pray for his children, Job chapter 1, that the, he asked God to put a hedge of protection around uh, his household, a hedge of protection. May we ask that same prayer and ask the Lord to put a hedge of protection around Grace Church. He has been faithful to us in the past. Would he continue to be faithful to us in the future in these same ways to make us fixed and steadfast and not like what we see here in the book of Jude? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. And Father, our concern is our own hearts. And we pray that you would strengthen and establish, I pray that you would strengthen and establish your body the church. Father, we thank you for the Lord's day. In all of this day, what it means for us, what it does for us. We're our whole lives and we're in one sense calibrated around the worship of our triune God on this day of the Lord. Everything makes sense in relation to this day because this day is a foretaste of glory. This day is a foretaste of heaven. As we sing these songs, this is simply a rehearsal. 
this is not only the overflow of our joy and praise, yes, for sure, but this is simply a rehearsal for heaven. As we look to Christ by faith through the revealed word of God, this is simply a rehearsal for the day that we will see you not through looking through a glass darkly, but we see you in your full glory face to face when we all get to heaven. Father, as we think about the breaking of bread and fellowship with the saints, this is simply a, a trial run for the, for the full joys of glory that await us as we think about fellowshipping with you, serving you, spending all eternity with the bride of Christ. Father, I pray that the saints of God would be encouraged now as we leave this place, as we move into the, our work week this week. There are things that lie in front of us. There's been a number of things that have happened in the last two or three weeks, Lord, that have been jarring. People we've known and loved and are sick, are under affliction, have passed away. Father, we pray that you give grace to your saints, that you would use us as we leave this place, Lord, going on mission to take the word of God that we've received today be fixed and strengthened and share that with others and to be faithful to the gospel that is Christ Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. The Lord bless you and keep you.